Hey, Sander. Hello, Joey. Nice to meet you and see you again. Well, yeah. you. we've already met, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's Hi. been a long, long time. So I can imagine why you... Uh, yeah, why you think that. Yes. I think it's been over a couple of years, actually. I think so. I was actually... Um, uh, a while ago, I was searching my name on SoundCloud. And mm-hmm. then uh, one of the first things that pop up is uh, the audio recording of our interview uh, back then. I think it was somewhere around 2017 because I, I kind of remember I was in my prior office. I think 2017 or 18, something like that. Long time. Holy shit. Well, yeah. a, lot of, a lot has happened definitely uh, in between. Um, yes. But yeah, to, oh, I didn't expect it to be so long. I thought it was like three years maybe. Could be. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, since even the pandemic has been almost three years ago, time flies. Yeah. It's crazy. It how, how, does. Yes. Crazy how the things go. So how have you been since then? Pretty good actually. Um <coughs> so I think the last time we spoke you kind of just got started with uh yeah, in, in Dutch it's called the da- the dance advocate. Uh, in English it's uh, the dance lawyer, I guess. I think that that's already a long time ago because I, I started the dance at Fukat in 2015. Okay. Uh, so it must have been must have been past that. Uh, it oh, was yeah. basically something because I noticed that in the world of law and lawyers, there's a big gap between what's going on in the studio life. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a, a DJ and party organizer myself, it's more easy to talk the same talk that uh, creatives use instead of the typical lawyer talk. And I just try to bridge the gap. Uh, and that's why I started the dance advocate in 2015. Yeah. Um, but that, yeah, from that point on, it really took off. Uh, I started my own company in 2017 and uh, the newest venture is called backstage legal. And that mm-hmm. is a legal collective for lawyers and attorneys at law that are actually from the creative industry themselves. Okay. So everybody is um, doing law, but they also have a career in the creative industry. So we got a, a guy who's also a rapper and a comedian, and really? he used to be a radio DJ. We got a producer and a bass player from a quite famous Dutch band, still producing a lot of film music. Uh, we got a lawyer who was also a shareholder within an event company. Uh, he had a podcast studio, and uh, he's also DJing now and then. And... Um, yeah, I'm still DJing as well. Oh, nice. It's just, it's such a unique combination because you wouldn't necessarily put lawyers b- uh, behind the, the the decks, I would say. Like, it, it's it's a weird image, you know? Yeah, I know. Because lawyers used to have kind of a dull image. Yeah. Um, and that's why this is quite unique is that, A, I was able to find uh, people that had the same passion for music and a creative industry as I have. And we're all entrepreneurs. So it's an office without employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like the vibe within that. So if we want to do something together uh, in regard of uh, like a, a workshop or uh, a partnership with a, um, a freelance platform, you know, you roll it out. And it's not because you have to as an employee, but it's because you want to as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and that, that's really nice. So we're all independent uh, working together if if it's necessary or if it's useful or if it's fun. Um, but we each also do our own thing and we can combine it with our work in the creative industry. So that's uh, that's really nice. I'm really happy how it's going. Yeah. So it's called Backstage Legal and um, 
yeah, it's already our uh, going into the, the second year. Okay, so you started full in the pandemic. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we started full in the pandemic. I, I recall our, our photo shoot was still kind of like in the beginning, we had a like photo and video shoot uh, in empty clubs. So we had a, a part was shot in Club Air in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And some really cool pictures uh, were shot in an empty radion. Um, yeah, that was that was full in the pandemic. Uh, yeah. I think especially, you know, at that point of time, everybody was on his own island, like literally and figuratively sitting yeah. at home by themselves doing the work. And I always thought, what if I could connect people who are doing their own work and Part of our work is like reading and, and thinking and being in our own heads. What if I could combine forces and get everybody together with um, uh, wants to A, not be alone anymore and have other creative lawyer people uh, around him, her, etc. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. So what is it that you exactly do for artists? Because I think for, for most people, who are listening or watching right now, they, they've heard of lawyers. I think uh, they have a maybe even a bad image for most people uh, yeah. because they're they're connected to bad things, uh, obviously, as in you know, <laughs> but normally in most cases, you only come in contact with lawyers if shit hits a fan, right? Yeah, or on TV, like the, or exactly. movies, like the, the typical uh, criminal lawyers. Exactly. Um, at, at, uh, show news programs and that kind of stuff. And uh, in media, when a big drug lord or with homicide uh, cases get caught, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's why people might have a negative bias towards lawyers. Um, I think differently from that, but I, that's why I, I like what you're doing, as in uh, I was just looking at your website. <coughs> um, and the way how you offer your product makes it much more digestible or something like much more lighter than um than most people would have think i guess yeah but um, i think I, ha I have three things like my answer is like threefold i didn't start my life as a lawyer i started mm -hmm. my life and especially my career in the music industry as a six-year-old kid making mixtapes of gabber music and music from TV. And then I started mixing CDs and like making year mixes. And then I started throwing parties. And then I started DJing more and more and more and more. Um, and then I graduated from law school. And then I DJed more and more and more and more. And I DJed on events like Burning Man and Swarthy Coles and Familiar Forest. And then I became a lawyer. Yeah. And I also, I, I used to do a lot of stuff with art. I used to have my own fashion label. But that was all before I became a lawyer. Mm. Um, I think the second thing is, and that's what I've already mentioned in the beginning, if you speak the same language, it's easier to connect. True. I didn't like the old type of law myself. I didn't like the old school law firms. I didn't particularly like wearing a suit to work. I mean, I do like wearing suits, but you know, if you go like to a, a fancy party, a suit is a uniform. Just as police officers have a uniform, it serves a function. Yeah. And wearing a suit in a creative industry does not serve the function you want. It creates a distance mm -hmm. instead of you know wearing my normal clothes like now, like other people do. Yeah. Um, 
Maybe that's the best word to describe it, how people feel towards lawyers, as in how artists feel towards lawyers. It's distant. Yeah. I know. I, I understand yeah. because a lot of them use very difficult language and they fail to explain it in practical terms. So not even normal people language, but studio people language or stage people language or performance people language or yeah. you know anything. So... And the, not, I, I, the third thing is, I think that the knowledge of the law and what I think artists and performers or labels and managers, etc., should know to progress their career in that respect, um, is it's always very dull and very difficult. It's written from the lawyer to the reader instead of the other way around. Like, what does the reader need to know my perspective and what way of communication can I use? Yeah to have a maximum effect. And I think that little step is something that people forget um, if, they're, like, they, if they went to law school without a purpose or if they like, got sucked into the more traditional um, type of lawyer yeah. and law firm. And I just, I wanted to do that differently because I used to work, kind of work at those kind of law firms. Uh, no, wait, I used to work at law firms that were kind of like that. That's what I should say. Yeah. Um, and that didn't feel right for me. And I noticed that a lot of my clients were also like a little bit hesitant to continue that relationship while they did not really feel heard or seen and had to pay uh, quite high fees and didn't get the response they got. There was no like client onboarding. Nobody really thought about user experience, so to say. And uh, that's why I started my own company. And yeah. uh, I've always been super interested, for example, if, uh, if you get signed into like a new online web service, like how they treat you and how they walk you through the process and how they do everything in order to, for you to use the services to the best of their abilities, but also to just give transparency and an understandable oversight of what's going on. And that's what, um, I'd like to do different. Yeah. And I think you are doing it different as in, yeah, as I just mentioned, I was watching your website. It instantly feels different. It feels more modern, more yeah, connective as in um, me as a creative. Yeah. It didn't feel like a lawyer page to me. It felt like, oh, there's something valuable here to get. Let's see what it is. Right, that's uh, a nice compliment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks. Uh, happy to say it. <laughs> Um, what I also noticed is that you offer different types of um, packages, and one yes. of them was um, one of them stood out to me, which I think is a great one. I'm not sure it happens more often in lawyer land, but uh, like the subscription thing, is that something that happens more often, or um, it has happened now and then, but um, I, I use it for some clients. And uh, as you said in the beginning, for most people, a lawyer comes into play when shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. And I would like to be the legal partner that helps you in the beginning to avoid any shit hitting any fan. Yeah. So if you have to fix stuff uh, afterwards, it's usually under stress, emotions, and will probably cost you a little bit more because you have to fix something from the past. And you have to dive deep into what really happened. What were the agreements? Uh, who defaulted? What did you do about it? And if you can avoid that, um, 
I think that gives ease of mind. I think that's mm-hmm. that's an important thing. And it's easier to like kind of give a little nudge when uh, something new happens. Mm-hmm. So being a legal partner and having a subscription model in that regard is um, um, a way to prevent those issues from happening because somebody can just call and say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of like doing this. If I'm thinking about that, can you give me some direction? Mm-hmm. And that is before I have to look into deep dive into contracts. So yeah. it's an easy way for me to say, well, no, just go ahead or think about this or this, or uh, this is more like a business call yeah. um, instead of a legal call. And um, uh, yeah, I, I try to help in that way. Mm-hmm. But not too many people use it because they still have the idea of I'm going to a lawyer if I need contracts or I'm going to a lawyer if um, if something happened. Yeah. So, but it, and yeah, I, I use it for some clients. And what type of client would be uh, the one who's interested in the subscription model? Like a, a more successful one who already is at the level where you do have to deal with labels or managers or. Yeah, I, I think, well, yeah, I, I think if if you are um, using your rights and signing contracts or going into collaborations or into new business plans or ventures, then it could be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all starts with getting the idea of what your rights are. So I have this mantra that if you are aware of your rights, you can sign smarter deals. If you sign smarter deals, you will have less risk and more income, less risk and more income creates more freedom, more freedom is more creativity and more creativity leads to more work. Mm-hmm. That is a way how you can get into a positive spiral upwards. And um, so that, that starts in knowing what your rights are. So what I usually do at a first uh, meeting with a client, I just get a big piece of paper and I start drawing. So who are the people and who are the companies you are working with? And then you'll see the connections, like the line between one and two, and then you see what rights are involved. And if you get an oversight of that, um, and there are multiple players in the game, then uh, and there you can see the money streams, like follow the money where it goes to. And uh, if you add it up, you can see whether uh, it might be beneficial to have a different entity, like a limited liability company or a besloten vennootschap or BV in Dutch. Yeah. Um, but that you, you need an oversight for that, and to create that oversight and to check up whether um actions you take or plans you have might affect the 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 uh, entire blueprint of your company that might be a good idea to call mm-hmm. but it can also be if you like if you sign a lot of um if you sign a lot of featuring deals or if you sign um track by track publishing deals with minor differences and you just want to ask a quick question about it without me studying the entire contract, then it might be a good idea to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and would you say creative people are not necessarily the best when it comes down to uh, defending their rights? I um, know. I think the problem is not with defending the rights. I think, um, I think it, it starts with that awareness. And I do understand that if you, uh, want to create music or art or anything that you do not like the paperwork part. Mm-hmm. Like for me as a lawyer, I, I don't like to do the tax part. So I hire an accountant that's really yeah. good and does my taxes. Uh, but I do want to understand it because if I don't understand it, then I do not know if it's optimized 
and I want to learn to understand it. So I, I want advice from my accountant whether to make my financial game smarter. And with a lot of artists, I see that they're not really interested in it. Because it like if you look at the underground, it's not so much done to get into the business part of music. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I see uh, people sometimes just want to save money. And I, I understand that. But if it's then not optimized and it's more expensive to fix that afterwards, because you have to fix it all the way back and you need to draft contracts that if you would have done it from the beginning were more easy and yeah. cheaper. Um, but there luckily are also a lot of people who take this seriously and use this awareness and knowledge of rights to get into that positive spiral upwards, as I said. And, it, you know, it's, it's also, I think, it's ease of mind. If you know that your contract game is solid, if you know that your, uh, for example, cancellation terms for uh, a gig are solid, um, if you know how to do invoicing and collection, if that's solid, then you know that if, if somebody doesn't pay you, you'll be probably on the winning end of it. And that is taking so much stress and negative emotions away. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it starts with the awareness. Um, but, yeah, you, you kind of need to like doing that. And um, also, so a, a while ago, I written an article for a really underground platform throwing illegal raves in Amsterdam. And we had kind of had a discussion following that article about, you know, making money from your music. Um, and, you know, for me, it's, it's okay if you make money from your music, even if you're in the underground and super obscure techno tunnel race, for example, because, you know, you can buy merch from your favorite artist to support him or her or them. Uh, you can, you can buy tracks via Bandcamp or you can buy vinyl or you can just go to a show or just even gift somebody the money or pay beer or get some food. So how you spend the money is up to you. It's not that if you make it or make money from, from your music or your art that you're trying to get into the DJ Mac Top 100 forever, yeah. you know? Um, True. So it, it's about how, how you do it, with what kind of intention. Mm -hmm. And either way, I just like to help with optimizing the legal game. So you can basically do what you want to do. That's create cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. It takes, off the, it takes a lot of the load of stress. Yeah in the whole process and creativity gets crunched by stress. So makes sense. Yeah. For me as a, as an entrepreneur or a company, um, it's nice to know whether what I'm doing is right. And if I have any risk in it, uh, especially if, if other people get involved or money gets involved and I just yeah. want to know that it's solid. What are some of the most common things you see happen over and over again with artists, mistakes that they've made or um, lawsuits that, that keep coming up. Like there's, there must be some kind of pattern uh, in this. Yeah. The, um, there are a lot of things, but I'll try to point out three. The first thing I say to so many of my clients, or if I give lectures at from like ranging from universities to uh, music educations, is if you get a percentage, your first question should be a percentage of what? Mm -hmm. A percentage is a part of something, so you need to determine what something is. So 
if you go to a shop and there's 30% discount, usually you get like 30% for what was on the original tag, right? Mm-hmm. That's a starting point. That's quite easy. With music, it can be a little bit more difficult. You got um, the calculation basis of your royalty, so the part you get. This can be at source or as received. At source is basically what is made with your music. And as received is what the party gets that has to pay you your part. There can be a huge difference. So for example, if you are a remix artist and you remix a track from an artist that is signed to a label and the label has a distributor, Mm -hmm. then for example, Spotify pays out the distributor. The distributor, that's like 100. The distributor takes 20%, pays 80 to the label. The label has a deal with the artist that they split it. Well, if you're lucky for digital, 50-50. <laughs> so the artist gets 50, uh, gets 40. Yeah. And if you get 20% out of 40, like you're not getting so much money. Yeah. If you are getting 20% at source, that's a lot more because all those deductions don't matter. Then the second thing is if you have determined what the source is, so at source or as received, Mm -hmm. then you need to take care that you can control some of the costs. In a lot of contracts, I see that there is an unlimited cost deduction. This is probably not really legal right now in the Netherlands and most European countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I make a quick reference to the Martin Garrix case. They're still fighting about whether contract uh, uh, clauses were um, unreasonable or not. Is it but still probably, going on? Yes, it's still going on. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, remind me of it. Yeah. But um, then, it, yeah, we're talking about the cost deduction. So if you have to pay for everything that a label or the artist you made a remix for, um, once do with your remix, artwork, video clips, etc., then all the risk is with you. You will probably have no master rights and um, your royalty percentage will be reduced by all those things and all those fees that are uh, taken, taken off. Yeah. So that is one. I think two is that still... No, that was two. Sorry? That was already two. Yeah, that was already, I think that was already two. I think in the, in the contracts... Um, a lot of arguments there to push something through, like a, a clause, is because it's always been like this in the music industry. Mm-hmm. That is not a valid argument. That's not a valid reason. You can always ask why something happens, and I think you should get a transparent and honest explanation. There can be uh, like a good reason why you want to split risk or why you want to make a certain divide in, in monies. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it always happened like this, it's not really a good argument. Because the law changes and we got new court cases, a new explanation. So in 2015, our law changed. And, uh, in 2021 and 22, the EU laws also changed, um, stating that parties that get the rights, labels, but also distributors and sublicenses, etc., they have to use your music. If they do not use it, you can get your rights back. And simply uploading it once is not seen as active exploitation, probably. So that is kind of new. They need to be transparent. So they mm-hmm. need to provide you relevant, accurate, and full information um, about what money came in and yeah. uh, what costs went out. 
And sometimes I just see like a one pager with, you know, your track generated a thousand euros. You can invoice us this, but you need to be able to check it. Yeah. Uh, and contracts cannot have unreasonable clauses anymore. So what they tried to do was kind of balance the uh, equilibrity between artists and uh, the companies that are exploiting the rights of the artist. So I think that kind of changed, and but the contracts didn't. So the contracts kind of stayed old school, mm-hmm. making the clauses um, not really up to date anymore and possibly even illegal. So this is a bad thing for the artist, but also for example, a label, because if you use those illegal clauses or avoidable clauses, um, A, you will get disgruntled artists. And if you're not transparent, you know, your artist will maybe suspect that um, something's going on, that they're, you're not giving a, a transparent oversight of what money came in, that you're yeah. keeping money behind. And um, if it ever goes to court, you'll both lose. Yeah. So I think there is an urge to change the contracts before the problems start. And um, that is something that I do not really see happening. The third thing is about master rights. And that's uh, also what the Martin Garrix against Spinning Records case was about. It was the determination who is the phonogram producer. And in a lot of contracts, which just simply stated, the label is the master owner. That's not necessarily true. What's important is who took the initiative and carried the responsibility for the recording, the first mm-hmm. recording. Um, and if you look at the Garrix case, I think most producers, or at least a lot of producers work in, in the same way as Garrix did. He thought of animals on his bed. He played it in his home studio. He recorded it. He paid for mixing and mastering, and then sent it to the record label. So he was the guy who took the initiative and carried the responsibility for the recording. Spinning Records would have said, we didn't like the record. We don't want it. Then all the risk would be with the artist. I think that is how it happens in 99% of all cases. But what I do not see in um, our work yet, and I've spoken to this about fellow lawyers as well, we don't really see producers and artists like acting up again uh, and using this Garrick's case to get their master rights back. And again, every, every situation is different, but we would have expected so much more um, like traffic and action in this regard. It's like a sleeping giant. But does it mean that, let's say I have about, I don't know, 50 tracks signed in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing most of them I've signed away my rights because I was young. I had no idea. I just signed the contract uh, and the label is the, the, the rights owner at this point. Does that mean that by now I can go to them and say, hey, but I've been the, the person who took initiative uh, of the record. Well, it, you know, it, it like comes together in the whole spectrum of what happened in that case. So there was a lot more going on there. But if they're not actively exploiting your tracks. Uh, that so that can... also in, in, in hindsight, as in the, the new law is also, um, yeah, it does, it's also for all the, the deals that have been made before 2021. Yeah, so yes, definitely before 2021. It, um, hmm. So uh, this law in the Netherlands was 2015 already. The, but one, the one of the... Um, um, if they don't exploit it, if, yeah, if that they don't use it. Yes, the, and actually it, it was already in our law and it's already in most legal systems 
that if you give somebody else an assignment to to uh, promote and exploit your music and they don't, you can just send them a notice of default mm-hmm. for as far as they can still fix it. If they don't fix it, you terminate the agreement, you get your rights back. And um, most collective mm-hmm. rights organizations also have a possibility for this. That's good to know. But now it's also in our copyright law and it's made more specific, but there are at least three ways if somebody else doesn't use your music to get your rights back. Um, and this, because of the, like we were uh, w- with the law change in 2015, we instated this, but uh, last year, so six years later, this like kind of the same rules uh, are EU leg- legislation now as well. So it's, you know, like all member states need to comply with it. But yeah, it's it's an interesting way to to possibly get your master rights back because uh, well, in the Netherlands you get fifty percent of Sena income from it. Yeah, um, and when you say yeah. the label has to use your track, do you mean like license it out to gaming or to TV or whatever? Yeah, or at least try. They need they need to actively do something with it. If they, you know, I think even an in-house compilation could count as such. Yeah, that's why I'm always a little bit wary that in contracts, uh, you know you need to be really clear if that is exploitation and if that's their main game plan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just simply simply uploading it on SoundCloud and all portals, and even if you do that by distributors so they actually don't do it themselves, mm-hmm. and just leave it there. Uh, that's probably, like most probably, uh, not active exploitation. Um, there are not any court cases about the subject yet, but like all things point toward that uh, uh, standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And what if the, the label released your song two years ago, actively pushed it at back then, yeah. and now two years later, uh, they've kind of let it go for like one and a half years? Yeah, I mean, that is that is a kind of a, a short term, but if you have the feeling that there are possibilities and they're not doing it. They're not using their, well, if it's an exclusive right, for example, they're not using their exclusive right and you do see possibilities. Um, then you could send them a notice. And I think one year, one and a half year. Um, Let's say five years. Five years, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, you know, they, they cannot really fix it for the past, but if it's been going on for a really long time, um, or for example, the same goes with publishing rights. You know, if you see sometimes that a publisher and a record label are connected, and if a, the record label is releasing the track, this is not the activity of the publisher anymore, because yeah. you know publishing is about the copyright, about what I always say is the theory of the music. It's a song before it's sung. It's um, it's a tune before it's played. It's like on paper or in your computer, the composition or lyrics. Mm-hmm. So the theory, as soon as you start to perform it and to record it, that's what we can hear. That's what we understand from music. Uh, those are other rights. Mm. So those are neighboring rights and that, those are the rights that you sign away to a label, for example. And um, uh, that's what we can we can hear, what we can sell. Mm. And a copyright, yeah, that also needs active exploitation. Could be in syncs, could be in sheet music. You don't see that really happening with electronic music, but no. it still happen. Uh, but those are syncs and, and all kind of other collaborations, uh, remixes, etc. Wow, I didn't notice like the, that the new law kicked in and uh, nobody really uh, communicated it. 
Maybe, maybe Bumastera did, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think, actually, I think a lot of people um, did write about it because this was really something new. Yeah. And it really, you know, there was an online um, questionnaire for artists and for people who, who had a stake in this. And But those kind of things only reach a small group. And... Um, yeah, that that's a little bit the, the problem, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is uh, there is a big gap. I mean, I mean, I try to bridge it, and there are a lot of my colleagues try to bridge it, but still, it's not common knowledge. Yeah. It's still not common knowledge uh, how this works, how to get your rights back, what the new well new law. I mean, it's it's all, it's like over seven years now in the Netherlands. <laughs> exactly so it's not that new anymore um and the garrick's case has been going on since i think 2017 yeah something like that uh and they're still you know they're set about the master right part but they're still litigating about uh, unreasonable clauses Hmm. um but we had a lot of insights from that case and well it's been quiet um in that regard for for uh, years now i think yeah yeah for so hopefully hopefully this this helps and um i think you know i think artists will be more aware of their master rights and if there is a reason to claim them back i mean it's it should be financially attractive to do so i mean yeah. claiming your rights back where you don't have to do anything with it it's a label is not really likely to give them away um but you need to find a solution for it yeah. But in order to take the action, uh, yeah, I, I think it could be beneficial in the long run to to start doing something. Yeah. And the notification towards a label could just be a simple email saying, hey, I feel like you don't really use your exclusive rights. Uh, you have this amount of time to... Yeah, just get a reasonable reasonable term. Yeah. Uh, if, if you, uh, you know, Google a notice of default or your Dutch or whatever translation of that, and you can kind of see how the system works. A lot of people write about it. Um, and yeah, if, it's, if it can still be fixed, then you can send this notice of default. And um, if they don't act up within a reasonable term, then you could terminate the contract whole okay. or in part, uh, if that's beneficial to you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it can also be, we're, we're really talking into like a, a conflict way of handling the system. Yeah. Uh, renegotiating your deal or seeing whether you can actually enlarge the cake and get a win-win situation yeah. uh, that might also be a very good option to do it because then you skip all the litigation and fighting and legal costs and that kind of stuff yeah and at the end of the process you probably still like each other um, hopefully <laughs> yeah hopefully but you know that's where it probably started when you signed with with one of those yeah. parties is that they liked your music and you like their capacity and capabilities Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes, you know, things get a little gray, dull or dark, and maybe it's good to dust that off again. Good point. Good point. So fighting, fighting is, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of lawyers who are, they're going two legs straight in yeah. uh, into litigation and uh, conflict. But I believe that a durable and um, more sustainable solution is in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's a better solution mm-hmm. to go for. Yeah, I agree. Sandra, I want to thank you for your time. Yeah, more than welcome. 
it's been great catching up and uh you definitely had some good tips here and there for uh, the future uh f- yeah. yeah future how do you call it like uh yeah the future artists who are listening at this point yeah so and, uh, percentage is a part of something yeah. ask for transparency and maybe get your rights back or get a solution yeah i know i have some calls to make <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so definitely it works out, and otherwise, you know where to find me. Yeah, you know, like uh, I I signed so many tracks in the in the past, and I, I never really I did read the contracts, but most of them just really didn't make any sense to me, and I just felt like, oh, those people know how it works, so I'll just trust them, and you know how it goes. Um, yeah, it's also a little bit learning learning money, learning yeah. code you pay for uh, progressing your career, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's good to realize now how those things work. And uh, especially for people who are listening to this, um, they might be in the middle of signing something and uh, making them aware of these things really helps. So yeah, thank you yeah. for that. I'll uh, leave your uh, like your business tags and stuff in the, in the comments. So if people want to find out more about you, um, I will leave the links in the, in the descriptions. Yeah, that's um, idea. so maybe there's a lot of information on my website a lot of blogs that help you for example yeah. uh, check your own contracts it's all dutch right yeah. it is dutch but uh most browsers have a translate button oh true yeah the google yeah, uh, so, yes so you yeah. can basically translate my website and the blog in uh, any language you want that's a good point great thanks for taking this time and uh see you soon more than welcome thank you bye enjoy Thank you.